If we do drive into a, a new driverless car world, there are certain things in the law that are going to have to change. Everyone is used to having new technology being introduced every year, every month. Now the law always is following along behind the technology, so I don't know that the law is ready for it yet. That gets us into a, a dangerous gray area where we're either trying to apply existing laws that really don't fit the situation, or we're not addressing it at all, which is even more dangerous. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny and warm Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today visiting the Massachusetts State House. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, imagine a world where you no longer have to drive your car to work. Simply type in the destination, then your automobile takes care of the rest, leaving you free to do work, drink a coffee, or otherwise relax as you hurtle down the road in an autonomous vehicle. Well, in recent news, there's been a fair amount of talk about Google and a number of other companies' driverless cars, though many applaud the idea of an automobile that can both drive and park itself. There remains a lot to consider about the licensing, safety, liability, and freedom issues associated with these vehicles. So to discuss this topic, we have joining with us today three guests. First is John Weaver. John is the author of Robots Are People Too, which explains amendments to existing laws that will become necessary as artificial intelligence and autonomous technology become more widespread. In addition, he's a contributing writer for Slate magazine, addressing similar topics and he's also an associate at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, where among many areas, he provides legal services for property acquisition, financing, and development projects. Welcome, John Weaver. Thanks for having me. In addition, we have joining us Todd Berg. Todd is a former trial attorney and legal news reporter with Michigan Lawyers Weekly. Today, he provides analytical research and writing support to the attorneys at Michigan Auto Law, a firm entirely dedicated to the representation of clients involved in automobile accidents. They boast the largest auto truck verdict in their home state in the last 15 years and guarantee a victory for their clients or they won't charge at all. Welcome, Todd Berg. Thanks a lot, Craig. It's great to be here. And last, certainly not least, we have Miss Anna Eby. Anna is a business litigator and appellate attorney in Austin, Texas, where she represents businesses and individuals in complex commercial disputes before Texas state, federal, and appellate courts. In addition, and or more on point for our episode, she's an avid car photographer and a motorsports attendee, and she maintains a car blog called Motorista, which covers legal issues in the automotive industry. Welcome, Anna Eby. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, let's just start with Anna. And uh, is the United States ready to have driverless cars? I don't know that the law is ready yet. I think consumers are. Um, everyone is used to having new technology being introduced every year, every month, so I think folks are ready for it. Now, the law always is following along behind the technology, so I don't know that the law is ready for it yet. Todd, what's your perspective? I, I would agree with Anna. I think uh, aside from the need to um, perfect the technology as much as possible, 
Uh, I think that, you know, if we're going to move into this brave new world, the, we need to have some brave new laws to deal with the, the implications of that for people's safety in using driverless cars. John, let's tweak this question just a little bit. For consumers, for the people who are buying cars, are they ready to start buying consumer driverless cars? I think some people are and some people very much aren't, and some of the people who aren't never will be. Uh, if you listen to uh, manufacturers of some of the higher-end automobiles in the market right now, um, they might be developing uh, self-driving technology or looking into it, but they're not exactly embracing it. So we can expect Rolls-Royce to remain a, a Rolls-Royce and not a driverless car? Their customers, or at least the, the ones they've identified as their ideal customers, want to drive. That's part of what they're looking for, and they're buying a certain type of machine to enhance their driving experience. A lot of drivers, though, like commuters, um, I certainly count myself in that, are looking forward to having a car that does the driving for them so that they don't have to have the bother of it. Well, Todd, what's your understanding of who's going to be the driver in these driverless cars uh, from a legal liability standpoint? Will it be the person that sits behind the wheel? In fact, if there even is a wheel, or will both of the people or anybody that's sitting in the car be considered passengers and the driver will be the car itself? Well, that's a great question. Uh, in a way, it's all of the above, because I think if even though we have the technology involved, it's still going to come back to the same thing. Who's in control of the vehicle? And so I, I think, you know, if you've got a driverless vehicle, certainly the technology, I think, qualifies as an operator or a driver. But I think whoever else is in the vehicle, which is, uh, who is um, probably directing the technology, which is then directing the, uh, the travel of the vehicle, I would say that they would also be, they would also qualify as a driver or operator of the vehicle. If you're just riding in there as a passenger, either in the passenger seat or in the back seat, and you have no, no say in how, the, how fast the car goes or what the direction is, uh, I, I think the argument there would be that you know, you know you're just a, you're just a passenger. What about the situation where the car takes voice commands? Can't anybody in the car issue a voice command? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think I think if, if you do that, uh, you kind of uh, self self appoint yourself as as a driver to to some extent. Well, I remember when my mother used to drive with my father, and she would regularly instruct him how to drive. Well, he had the op- well. He had the, theoretically, he had the option of not following those instructions. But uh, I think a person in the backseat of a driverless vehicle who maybe gives a voice command to turn here or take uh, I-275, I think they're an operator or they're, they're controlling the, the destination of the vehicle as much as if they reached over and uh, hit, the, hit the accelerator or turned the steering wheel. Anna, when I was talking with my wife about this program this morning, she's like, okay, great. How do we use these cars? I mean, can I just pack up my grandson in the car and send him back to my mother, I mean, back to his mother? And what about crimes? I mean, in a situation where, you know, someone says to the car, drive into this building or hit that person, are those things even possible? Well, that's an interesting question. And um, since I'm not an engineer, I don't know that I have a, a scientific answer to that question. Um, I, I would hope not. And I would hope that the technology that's developed and the rules that surround that would have some sort of, I would hope there would be a requirement that there be one person who would be designated um, the operator, if you will, um, separate and apart from the actual technology in the vehicle, someone who would be responsible for um, engaging the autonomous system um, so that would, they would sort of be like the driver, even if they're not actually, um, you know, have their hands on the steering wheel or doing something like that. 
otherwise, I think we, you know, I agree with um, with what Todd was saying, and I think that creates some issues if you've got four people in a vehicle and everyone can give voice commands. And I think that it's hard for me to imagine a system where we've got cars where you can just put someone like a child in your example in a car and just send them off. I'm hopeful that we we will always have a responsible person who knows how to operate a vehicle in the vehicle. I guess that means that there won't be any 12-year-olds driving cars. I hope not, although we've got plenty of um, adults who act like 12-year-olds when they drive, so maybe we'll be better off. (laughs) What kind of liability, John, do you think that uh, Google and whoever invents these driverless cars is going to have? I mean, certainly, since there's more control vested in the car, certainly the people that make the car are going to be liable? So this is um, a topic that I address in my book pretty extensively, um, the idea of where does the liability go and, and who, you know, who is the operator. Um, and you know, in some situations, you know, typical product liability law is going to govern if the driving mechanism breaks down and it's a manufacturing flaw or a design flaw, then yes, absolutely, the liability is going to go to the manufacturer. If the car behaves exactly as it's supposed to uh, and still gets into an accident, I think that the uh, the line as to where liability should go gets a little murkier. Uh, it's entirely possible that a car is driving along, gets into a situation where, say, a deer jumps in the middle of the road, and the car has to make a split-second decision, and the, the best-case decision is to still cause an accident. It's just the least of the possible accidents that it could cause. Uh, liability obviously has to go somewhere. Um, the states that have addressed this, California, Florida, and Nevada, have indicated in their statutes exactly what Ann was talking about, that the operator, the person behind the wheel, has liability as the operator, um, even if the, the self-driving mechanism is engaged, or if there isn't somebody in the driver's seat, whoever turns on the car is the operator under state law. Well, Todd, you know, you work for a plaintiff's firm. You're going to sue yeah. the manufacturer of the car every time, aren't you? <laughs> Well, not in Michigan, you're not. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's kind of what I was saying at, at, the, at the beginning of the show, is that if, uh, if the driverless, if, if we do drive into a, a new driverless car world, uh, there are certain things in the law that are going to have to change to account for situations where tragedy occurs. And one of those is the liability situation. Here in Michigan, we've got a very, um, we've got a very strict product liability law. And, you know, if, if I had a wish list in a driverless car world, top of that wish list would be to amend or change the law so that manufacturers wouldn't be exempt in situations like this. Under the existing law, it's very difficult to establish liability for a manufacturer in a situation like this. You'd have to, show, you'd have to jump the moon to practically do it. And recently, in, in um, the beginning of last year, March of last year, uh, a law was passed which, which allowed um, manufacturers to put driverless cars on the road to road test here in Michigan. And there was a liability provision in that bill. And I think that's probably, for lack of anything else, it's probably a predictor of what the future may hold. And that bill said that um, liability for the manufacturer would only exist if a defect could be shown, and it could be shown that the defect was there at the time of manufacture. And that provides, as as you might guess, very broad immunity for manufacturer. And I just think that if these cars become the thing of the future and they're all over the roads, you have a situation where they're creating a possibility for accidents, injury, death. They have to be held accountable 
on some level. I understand it's a, it's a developing technology and they need to have the room to, to grow and to move and flexibility, but at the same time, the public needs to be protected and somebody needs to be held accountable when things go wrong and someone gets hurt or someone dies. Is this going to be a, a subject of uh, federal regulation? I mean, we see new technologies and new types of things come forward all the time, especially in the biological world where there's all types of designing that can be done for babies and the like. I'm familiar with uh, a couple of law schools model rules or model laws project where the class will sit down with a professor and come up with an entire structure of laws for new technology. And, you know, you think about whether or not this is a state issue, and it certainly is a state-by-state issue because each state has its own set of laws, but are we going to need federal regulation on this? And and who's going to sit down and draft up a new set of laws that address this kind of stuff? Todd? Uh, That's a great question. Yeah, I think we are going to need uh, a a set of federal regulations. I think we're going to need a set of regulations on two levels. One, setting minimum uh, operational or functioning standards to make sure that these drivers of vehicles can handle everything that you can imagine out on the road. So that's one, one set. So, you know, what, what do they need to show to actually get on, get on the road? But also, I think that um, in order to deal with these issues of product liability, and I think Michigan is not totally unique in the sense that we have a, a very uh, broad immunity in our law. A lot, I think a lot of states have that. And I think the best way to deal with that, especially when you're going to have manufacturers that are selling all across the country, um, I think we need federal re- regulations that may establish some level of liability on the part of these manufacturers, either require them to start maybe a compensation fund uh, akin to the uh, vaccine compensation fund, or maybe require them to take out a, a, a liability insurance policies for the vehicles that they're putting on the road. You know, what happens in situations since these cars are going to be obviously computer-based that somebody finally figures out how to hack into it and then, say, for example, just directs the car to drive over the cliff and kills the driver. What kind of fail-safes are in, in these systems and, and who gets held liable for uh, the, the, what the car does when it's been hacked? John? Well, um, one of the mechanisms in place, at least under the, the law in the states to address this, um, is a, you know, basically a kill switch that would turn off the autonomous functioning. California, Nevada, and Florida all require some form of this where uh, the driver or somebody in the car is able to easily turn off the self-driving function and they could just take control of the car uh, regularly. Presumably, uh, and as Anna said, I think we're all attorneys here, not engineers, um, but presumably the technology that will be developed and is under development now will be designed so that there's a, a, you know, a firewall between the autonomous system that can be hacked into and just a regular car functioning so that when the kill switch goes, the driver or would-be driver doesn't have to worry about the hacker taking over the car, even though um, human beings should be responsible for it. However, in terms of where the liability goes, if a hacker takes control of a car and runs it into another car or building, I think that's another layer of complexity that requires uh, some government attention uh, and some assistance in the form of legislation or regulation indicating where collectively we have decided as a, a country where we want liability to go and how we want to address that. The laws right now just don't say anything about that. And that kind of that gets us into a, a dangerous gray area where we're either trying to apply existing laws that don't uh, really don't fit the situation or we're not addressing it at all, which is even more dangerous. Anna, what 
What about the situations where the government wants control over the kill switch for these cars? I can imagine that if I were in Boston and I were the mayor of the city, I might want to just flip a switch and turn off all the uh, driverless cars so that nobody can get on the roads in these massive snowstorms that they've been facing. Other less enticing ideas can come to mind about government control, but what's the possibility there and who's going to get control over these cars? Well, in Texas, I think the possibility is nil. <laughs> We're not very interested <laughs> in having too much government control in Texas, so I don't see that happening ever. As for the rest of you folks, uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting question that uh, remains to be seen. I would be very surprised if there was um, a great deal of government control over autonomous vehicles. I, I just I have a hard time. I have a hard time envisioning that. That sounds like the dystopian novels that we read and think hopefully that will never happen in real life. Right. Well, I can imagine a situation yeah. where Boston would say that they set up like a Wi-Fi network and, and uh, just jam all of the cars coming into the city to say nobody can come in. And you don't have a switch in the car, but they have a methodology of keeping a car out of a particular area. Todd, what's your sense? Well, I think it's, it's a great question. And uh, it, it is it, it definitely gives me a chuckle when I, when I see it because... I mean, it's, it's really forward thinking and, and it's, it, it's possible. I mean, if we got driverless cars on the road, this is possible as well. And I, I think, you know, the, the government always has uh, a police power. They, they have the ability to tell people what to do and what not to do under, under very stringent circumstances. So no doubt the government might say, you know, we're invoking our police power and we're going to take over this and we're going to stop all these cars from going on the road because, you know, it, it's a public health hazard. You know, but maybe that's justifiable. Um, maybe because they, you know, if they try to do it because it's too much traffic and it's causing too many delays, you know, I, I, obviously there would be uh, abundant pushback on the um, police power the issue. Gas rationing, just imagine that. Right. You can drive your car every other day and it's turned off on, on the odd days and you can drive on the even days. So, you know, there, there would definitely be a lot of scrutiny on decisions like that. But there's also, you know, the other aspect of the other constitutional side of this is of this which is, you know, uh, Fourth Amendment protections, privacy rights. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has, has ruled in the last couple of years that, you know, you've got to have probable cause in a search warrant to put a GPS on vehicles. You've got to have probable cause in a search warrant to uh, check out a, uh, the cell phone of somebody who's been arrested. I think a lot of those, those, those two cases and the, uh, the constitutional principles in those cases would definitely come to the surface very fast as soon as uh, the government starts trying to tap into people's, uh, you know, the, the, the computer or whatever that, that, that's governing their, their vehicle. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break now to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio, 
Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Todd Berg from Michigan Auto Lawyers, John Weaver, a lawyer and author of Robots Are People Too, and Anna Eby, a lawyer and author of Motorista. Well, we've been talking about government control of cars and exclusion from particular days of driving or areas. Anna, what's, what's it going to be like when you have both driverless cars and conventional vehicles on the road? How are they going to interact with one another? Well, I think the driverless vehicles will be much better behaved than the ones being driven by the rest of us um, to the extent that the autonomous cars have systems where they can communicate with each other. That could create some interesting um, situations where you've got both regular traditional vehicles and then these newer ones that are kind of on a different wavelength than the rest of us. But, you know, I I don't envision there being... a a huge issue with having both types, and I also don't think we will, hopefully not in my lifetime anyway, ever have roads where we only have autonomous vehicles. So, you know, I think they they will coexist. I think they already are to a certain extent more than we even realize. There are vehicles on the road right now that have some amazing autonomous um, abilities, um, the new Mercedes-Benz S-Class, for example, and they're already out there and being used. So I think they'll be able to coexist. What happens in this situation when you're in your driverless car, you have a health emergency like a heart attack or a seizure? How's that car going to handle it? Is it going to turn on the sirens and speed and get you to the hospital in time? Uh, Is it going to give you instructions on what you should be doing or instructing your passengers? Uh, Are we going to have births in in driverless cars? And how is all of this business about the the health of humans going to be handled in a driverless car? John, Todd? So I, I think that in terms of the, you know, when there's a medical emergency in a car, I, in a self-driving car, I think that that will be handled relatively similarly to what happens now if there's somebody in a car with a medical emergency. The car will make its way as safely as it can to a hospital with all haste. Uh, however, I doubt that the self-driving car will go as quickly as, say, the I read a story not that long ago about an expecting father who whose wife was in the back seat, and he drove 125 miles an hour to the hospital to get her there so that the child could be born safely. He ended up getting a police escort, and the police gave him a ticket for speeding after the child was born. I don't think a self-driving car is going to be... It would be difficult for the self-driving car to go 125 miles an hour. I just don't think it's going to be programmed to do that in any way. Um, but other than that, I think that the car will make its way as quickly as possible to a hospital. Well, somebody's going to ask that question after somebody dies of a heart attack in a car. Somebody's going to say, why isn't there a siren and why doesn't it speed? John had talked earlier about like the, the kill switch idea, and it seems to me like uh, that, that, that type of mechanism might be appropriate in, in a situation like this, a kill switch or some kind of yes. override so that somebody can grab the wheel and take it and or... Um, something uh, akin to like the OnStar system, you know, because if you are having a medical emergency, maybe the last thing in the world you should be doing is grabbing the wheel and driving like crazy to yes. the nearest hospital. Uh, having, if, if the computers are controlling your, your vehicle and you're, you're tapped into the internet in every other respect, uh, it seems like that would be a perfect uh, opportunity for a, a feature like OnStar to kick in and detect what's wrong and 
uh, alert the authorities and have them come to you. And Anna, what happens uh, now that we have these uh, driverless cars? We have banks that own an interest in the car along with the individual. And are we going to be putting the repo man out of business because the bank, you know, flips a switch and says, oh, you missed two payments and boom, car, turn around and return to the bank parking lot? I think that's an interesting scenario. Um, I would be very interested to see how different states handle that. I can tell you, again, in Texas, I don't see that happening. Um, but <laughs> I think the law will need to address that. I mean, that that's a very good example of... I mean, I'm an owner. You know, if I'm a bank, I'm an owner of that car, and I want control over what that car does. If you're not making your payments, that car needs to return to me. Well, I would prefer to, to keep the system we already have so that um, we, we're not giving um, increased power to... Uh, whether it's the government or business or even to individuals through the use of autonomous technology. But, um, you know, I'm sure there are some clever folks out there who are going to figure out a way to uh, make that beneficial for them. And what are we going to do when we get driverless school buses? Is the thing just going to drive around without a driver and pick up kids at various locations and shuttle them to school and bring them back home? Hopefully that day never comes. That's a terrible idea. Yeah. It'd be like Lord of the Flies on wheels. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. I think there will always be a situation where we will always have the need to chaperone kids. And I think that the school bus is a good example of that. So there will always be, even if there's a self-driving school bus, there will be an adult at the head of the bus that will ostensibly be in charge of kids. What about situations where you have uh, you, you go out to the bar with your friends and now is the driverless car the designated driver? I think it still goes back to the uh, to what we were talking about earlier as to who is the the actual operator and who is who is giving the the vehicle direction as to how it's supposed to function. <laughs> I know it seems crazy, but um, <laughs> you know uh, if you're the intoxicated individual and you're you're programming the vehicle to take a certain route or or, or do something in particular, if as a result of that command uh, a crash occurs, it seems like it seems that you would have to be the responsible party. Yeah, but I'm not operating the vehicle. I'm just telling it where to go. I just get in it and say, take me home. But I, I think the responsibility is going, to, is going to flow to whoever has control over the vehicle. And arguably that would be you because you're, you're giving the commands to the vehicle because the vehicle wouldn't actually do anything unless it was commanded to do so. All right. I'm go one last question before we get to the final thoughts segment of our program. Uh, Anna, is this just going to be a boon for Uber now that Uber and that everybody that's got a car that goes to work, well, it's going to sit there for five or six or eight hours while you're at work. Can you just put it into service? Well, maybe, you know, and I'm, I am a happy user of Uber. I think it's a great service. Potentially, I think it also creates um, a huge opportunity for all sorts of other apps and services. Yeah, I, I would say that it could very well be a boon for a lot of creative folks out there. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so this is the point in time that we ask our guests to share their final thoughts and relay their contact information. So, John, let's start with you. Sure. I think that driverless cars are exciting form of technology. I think they're going to be here commercially available by the end of the decade. As Anna said, some forms of them already are in limited fashion, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting one myself so that I don't have to drive anymore. Uh, people could reach me at john.weaver at morganlewis.com, uh, and they can find me on Twitter at robots are people, where the R is just the letter R. Excellent. Anna? 
Yes, well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here today. You know, there's one question or thought that I keep coming back to, um, and it relates to, you know, we were talking about the driverless school buses and um, some of these other issues or, you know, inebriated drivers. I think we're going to see a potential issue with liabilities of individuals in autonomous vehicles who engage the autonomous feature at times when they shouldn't. I think that's an issue, you know, we didn't really discuss that today, but that's something that's been in the back of my mind and something that we will probably continue to talk about. When is it negligent to engage the autonomous vehicle? So just throwing that thought out there, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I can be reached at uh, via email. My email address is eby at ebylawfirm.com and also on my blog, that's motoristablog.com. Excellent. Thank you very much. Todd? Craig, thank you very much for having me on Lawyer to Lawyer today. I really appreciate it. And uh, my closing thoughts would be uh, two things. Uh, one, driverless cars, are they're, they're going to be driving into our world sooner, uh, sooner or later. And the safety benefits, if they are half as, as great as what people are saying, you know, I, I think everybody will, will ultimately end up welcoming them in because they will reduce the number of accidents and injuries and deaths dramatically. And, and that will be a, a happy day. The second point is is that in order to prepare for that world, certain changes do need to be made to the laws. Immunity laws, like we have here in Michigan for manufacturers, they need to be reconsidered so that when and if something bad happens with a driverless car, people that are injured uh, are able to get the compensation they deserve. And whether that's just adjusting immunity laws, setting up some kind of compensation fund, or increasing uh, liability, insurance liability limits, one, or, one of those items, all three, they, they would all be great. So thank you very much for having me on today. I do appreciate it. Great. And how can our listeners reach you if they want to get a hold of you? Again, my name is Todd Berg. I'm at Michigan Auto Law in Farmington Hills, Michigan. And the best way to reach me is on email at tberg, that's T-B-E-R-G, at michiganautolaw.com. Wonderful. Well, we'd like to thank Todd Berg, John Weaver, and Anna Eby for being with us today. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.